We'll devote approximately one week to each beatitude up until Palm Sunday. Approximately because today, which is one of the eight weeks that we would devote to one whole beatitude, I want to just step back and try to see the cluster of beatitudes as a whole. And ask the question, what, what is a beatitude? What are these things? Are they conditions of salvation laid down which we must fulfill in order to inherit eternal life? Are they celebrations of the work of God in the life of disciples? Could it be both? How do we know? So the first thing I want us to do is open our lens and take in about five chapters worth. Let's look first at chapter 4, verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 23. It's a summary statement of Jesus' earthly ministry. It goes like this. And he went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity among the people. So one way to state a summary of what Jesus did when he was here on earth is to say that he preached, that is, he announced, he heralded the coming of the kingdom. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Secondly, he teached, he teached, he taught the way of the kingdom. He taught the way of the kingdom. What's, what is the ethic or the way of life one lives when he is gripped by the kingdom? And third, he healed, he did mighty works to show the power and the purpose of the kingdom. Now, let's look at chapter 9, verse 35. Chapter 9 of Matthew. This is almost verbatim from chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity. Now, when you see something like that, your ears should perk up and you should say, why did he repeat that? And the first thing I do when I see something like that is I look in between those two pieces of bread to see what the sandwich is like inside. And when you look inside the sandwich, what you find are two slices. You find a slice called uh, chapters 5 to 7, Sermon on the Mount. And a slice called chapters 8 and 9, a cluster of stories about the miracles of Jesus, mainly his healings. And you say, aha, I think I got it. The summary statement says he preached and taught ministry of the word and he healed ministry of deed and power. And then you look inside the two summary statements and that's what you find. A unit of word, the Sermon on the Mount, and a unit of deed. Miracles of healing. And you say, oh, Matthew is trying to present to us a little mini, a little mini summary of the life of Jesus and, and what he did in his word and what he did in his deed. Now, that's real important to see things like that, because right off the bat, implications start to multiply for our life and our thought right here. For example, I think the main implication is. The Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount is the same Jesus 
of the miracles in chapters 8 and 9. And therefore, a, a warning is issued to people who like to pick and choose in the Bible. A warning is issued to people, modern day types, maybe somebody like Albert Schweitzer, who like the Sermon on the Mount. That's good, solid, ethical teaching. We need some good, solid, ethical teaching in our day to, to get people straight. But we don't want anything to do with this hocus-pocus miracle worker who believes in demons, and rebukes fevers, and rebukes storms and makes them seals. We don't believe in that stuff. We need ethics. Yes, all right. Good teacher, fine. But not this weird supernatural magician. And Matthew's point is, this is one Christ. Or you, you, maybe you're in the other category. I hope you're in neither. The other category would be, oh, we like people who can heal our diseases. We like miracle workers. We're sort of charismatic types. We like to worship a supernatural Jesus, but don't tell us not to get divorced. Don't tell us not to lust. Don't tell us to forgive our enemies and love them and pray for them. Don't tell us to return good for evil. You stay out of our lives with your nitpicking, particular, Lord-like demands. Now, I don't, Matthew's point is, you can't have it that way. It's one Jesus. The Lord who teaches and the Lord who works miracles. He is nitty-gritty and practical, meddling in your lives, and he is supernatural and powerful, alienating himself from modern secular worldviews. And he presents himself as one Christ, to be believed as he is or not. Now, we can see this union of who he is in his power and what he teaches in his word when we get going with the Sermon on the Mount in particular Beatitudes. Let's go to chapter 5, verse 1. Verses 1 and 2 give the setting. This is very important. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And don't forget that word crowds. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, who was he talking to? Who was he teaching? Well, it says he was teaching his disciples. But what, what about the crowds? Where are they? Well, turn to the end of the sermon. Chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were... The crowds were astonished... And his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So who is the audience of this sermon anyway? I, here's what I see. He goes up on the mountain. He sits on a rock something. And here come the disciples in close, the smaller group. They gather around. They sit down in front of him and he begins to teach them. And here come the crowds. And they're there too. And Jesus knows they're there. 
In fact, he intends for them to hear what he has to say to the disciples. Otherwise, it wouldn't say in verse 28 of chapter 7, he taught them too. But you read this sermon, it all sounds like it's to the disciples, basically. It's all to the disciples. But he is intending it for the, the onlookers. Now, let me stick in a parenthesis of application here concerning our, our worship services at Bethlehem. I really believe this is a, a model and an example for what we should be on Sunday morning, Saturday night, Sunday night. Mainly we have worship services that are designed and a sermon that is prepared for the disciples, the inner ring, to strengthen faith, to mobilize for ministry, to inspire worship. But we know there are walk-ons. There are the curious. There are the skeptics. There are the invited guests. And we affirm their presence, your presence. And we affirm it on the basis of of an instance like this. Jesus wanted to be overheard as he talked to the disciples. I want to be overheard on Sunday morning as I address the saints. Because I believe with all my heart that what allures people into the kingdom is not just evangelistic messages that are pointed at them, but celebrating the benefits of the kingdom. Why would anybody want to become a Christian? Because they see what a wonderful thing it is that they have. That's what we talk about on Sunday morning. And so I urge you, feel free to invite anybody, absolutely anybody, to come to the services at Bethlehem. So that's a parenthesis of application concerning what we see right here in terms of who the audience is. Now, how does he begin this sermon? Here's a three-chapter sermon of our Lord. What is the beginning of this sermon? He begins with what we call Beatitudes, pronouncing uh, fortunate, maybe that would be a good word to use, fortunate, a group of people who who are a certain kind of people. Oh, how fortunate you are who are poor in spirit and and mourning for your sin, and meek in your bearing, and hungry for righteousness, and merciful toward one another, and pure in heart, and peaceable in the world. Oh, how fortunate such people are. It starts with an announcement of how fortunate that kind of people are. Now, let's look at these announcements of fortune, called Beatitudes. How many are there? You count the words blessed, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you get nine of them. I think there are eight Beatitudes. And here's why. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, blessed are you when men revile you. None of the other eight Beatitudes says blessed are you. They all say blessed are they or blessed are those. Or blessed are the poor. Only one says you. No. When you see that, you say, why? And then you see the connection between verses 11 and and 10. And you see that verse 11 is really just an expansion of verse 10, right? Verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And then getting real pointed and personal and direct with the word you. He gives a specific instance. Blessed are you when men revile you. 
That's one kind of persecution. So those are two reasons why I think I'm going to treat the beatitude unit as a unit of eight. Verse three being the beginning, verse 10 being the ending. Now, here's the third reason. Look at verse three. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now there, Matthew has a habit of sandwiching things. There's another sandwich. The beginning says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the eighth one says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And for that third reason, I think this next one is sort of an expansion and elaboration on the eighth one. Eleven, verse eleven is an expansion and elaboration of verse ten because the unit is sort of folded in between these two. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now here's, here's another thing to observe. Between the first in verse three and the eighth in verse ten, you've got six others and they're all different in their promise from the first and the last. They say, verse four, They shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, they shall obtain mercy. Verse 8, they shall see God. Verse 9, they shall be called the sons of God. Whereas the first and the last said theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, when you see things like that, you got to ask, what is being communicated here? What's he want us to draw out of the fact that the first is a present tense assurance. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And the last is a present tense assurance. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in the middle, six future tense promises. Why? Well, I I see two implications, at least, probably more. Here's one. By sandwiching this these six promises in between these two assurances of the of the kingdom, I think he's saying, if you've got the kingdom, these six promises are yours because they're part of the kingdom. If yours is the kingdom, then you will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. And so on. The future blessings belong to the people who have the kingdom. That's what it means to have the kingdom, to be possessed by and to possess the kingly power of God. That's the first implication I see. Here's the second one that I think is vastly more important. The present tense, theirs is the kingdom, verse 3, theirs is the kingdom, verse 10, sandwiching six future tenses, They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be satisfied. They will receive mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons of God. The point of that is to say the kingdom is both present and yet still future. The powers of the kingdom have come into the world in Jesus Christ in a very unique and special way. And the powers of the kingdom are at work right there in Jesus. And yet, there is so much more to be had. No matter how well you know Jesus. No matter how much of his power you have now. 
There is so much more that is coming when the kingdom reaches its consummation. We can have foretaste now, but the consummation remains yet in the future. Now, let me try to illustrate right here from the Beatitudes that truth that the kingdom is here working powerfully, and yet it's not here yet. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's just like Revelation 21 says, the last book of the Bible, blessed or rather God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be crying or mourning anymore for the former things have passed away. It's out there. It's going to be gone. Mourning is going to be gone. Comfort is coming. But look at verses 11 and 12 right here in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now, let me ask you. Can you honestly ever say, I'm rejoicing, I'm glad, and I have no comfort? No, you can't. That's that's nonsense. Well, then, where is the comfort? Is it in the future or is it in the present? Is the kingdom here or isn't it here? The text says they shall be comforted. The text says rejoice today. Because there's comfort today. So right here, there's the clear, unmistakable evidence. It's not here yet. There's so much more comfort to be had out there. Yet it is here in measure, a foretaste, enough to rejoice in persecution. Here's another example. Verse 9. They shall be called sons of God. Oh, I can't wait till I can be called a son of God. Romans 8.23. We groan inwardly waiting for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You're not sons yet. Or are you? Look at verse 16. Just a few verses later. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to whom? Your father. Yes, he is my father. Yes, I am his son. Yes, it's all ready. No, it's not here yet. Do you see it? You shall be called a son because the full experience of adoption is out there. The resurrection of the body. But yes, you are children of God now because he's adopted you already. And there are foretastes of childhood blessings that we have now. The kingdom is here working mightily. The kingdom is not yet here. And the point of these examples, and there are others in the Beatitudes we could look at, is simply to say that... He began with the statement, theirs is the kingdom. He ended the unit with the statement, theirs is the kingdom. And in the middle, he put, they shall, they shall, they shall, they shall, they shall experience so much more than they now have. And yet, oh, they've got the kingdom. You see the tension? That's so important to see. So many implications flow from understanding this. Seminary professors bend their brains to get seminary students to get a hold of this. And rightly so, because it is vastly full of implications for the way you read the Bible. I don't think you can understand the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, unless you get a handle on 
this truth. For example, let's test it on verse 7, just briefly. We're going to preach a whole sermon on verse 7 here in about three weeks, but it's so rich, I'm not worried about that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Hmm. That mean that God, the future judge, is waiting, watching the world. Hmm. Will they or will they not in their sin and fallenness and corruption and deadness become merciful people so that they can earn my mercy at the judgment day? I will watch and see will they become there. That's the way God is, watching and waiting to see if we become merciful people so that at the judgment day we can win his mercy. That's what it says, plain as day. Blessed are the merciful, for only they are going to get mercy at the judgment day. It does say that, but there is something that's not denied here and that we've seen so plainly now from the structure of the Beatitudes, namely... That the kingdom of mercy is not only future at the judgment day, it's here. The mercy of the kingdom has come. It's like a net that's been thrown into the sea of the world and he's dragging people to Jesus. Nobody comes to me unless the Father drags him. That's the word in John 6, 44. Nobody comes to me unless it is given him by the Father. Or take Peter. You remember that encounter in Matthew 16 where Peter comes to Jesus with the disciples and Jesus says, Who do men say that I am? Oh, they say that you're Elijah, one of the prophets. Who do you say I am, Peter? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven opened your eyes. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You didn't come to me. I drew you. You didn't recognize me. The Father revealed me to you. That's mercy here before I was ever invented or converted. We don't just wait for mercy at the judgment day and try to earn it by becoming merciful people. It preceded our existence. It brought us to the Savior. It opened our eyes to Christ. And it is now at work in us, making us merciful people. If you know the gospel of the kingdom, by just looking at the structure of the Beatitudes, you won't make that mistake of legalism when you come to verse 7 and say, Oh my, I've got to earn the mercy of God in the age to come. Because it says, those people who are merciful will get mercy and those who aren't won't. You won't make that mistake if you've not just flicked on the TV, listened to two seconds and flicked it off again and think you understand what the program was about. Matthew 18.33. You remember the story of the unforgiving servant? The king. Here we are. Here's the king, the kingdom. The king gives mercy. And the servant doesn't give mercy. Verse 33 says, the king says, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant 
as I had. There it is. There is what I'm after. I had, not will have, had mercy on you. You see, if you just let the wider context of the Beatitudes or even chapter 18 inform verse 7, then you can't make the mistake of saying you've got to on your own earn future mercy. What you say is you've got to rely upon the mercy that was shown to you to enable you to show mercy so that then that mercy can be rewarded with mercy in the future. The mercy of the kingdom has come. And oh, how we need to see the both and of the kingdom. God is not just waiting. He's casting his net out. And we didn't choose him first. He chose us first. And I want this so much to be built into your the fabric of your thought, because it is the fabric of Scripture. There are many biblical texts that say God will show you mercy in the age to come if you live a certain way. And there are many texts which say God has shown you mercy so that you can live a certain way. And what a sad thing it is that there are biblical teachers who rip these things apart. Call one law, call the other gospel, and tear the Bible in half. It isn't so. That's not law in any legalistic sense, if you let this stand. I was born again by the mercy of God before I ever knew anything. I was sanctified, am being sanctified by the mercy of God. And there will one day be a day when John Piper stands before the judgment seat of God. And this is what I expect to hear him say. You're a sinner. But I see the fruit of my son's mercy in your life. And because my son has wrought this mercy in your life, for his sake, I will show you another mercy. Come, beloved of the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That is not inconsistent. That is the beautiful fabric of biblical teaching. Yes, Only the merciful will be saved at the judgment day. But no, you do not earn your salvation. You trust your way to mercy because you have been met by the power of the kingdom that is already here and not just waiting to be shown at the judgment day. Unless we see this, unless this can get into your mind and become the fabric of your thinking, then the Beatitudes are going to be a closed book. The Bible's going to be a closed book to you or you'll rip it in half, call three quarters of it law, take the rest and have a false gospel. What are the Beatitudes? They are announcements to a certain group of people of how fortunate they are. You might 
paraphrase it like this. Blessed, blessed. He looks down on his disciples. Blessed, blessed. Fortunate are you men in whom the spirit of God and in whom the power of the kingdom is presently at work, making you poor and mourning and meek and hungry and pure and, and merciful. Blessed and fortunate are you. Celebrate. That's the first meaning of the beatitude, but it's not the only meaning because there's a crowd out there. They're just watching. They are not poor in spirit. They are not mourning for their sin. They are not meek in their demeanor. They're not hungry for righteousness. They're not merciful towards anybody. They don't have pure hearts and they don't make peace. They make conflict. What do the beatitudes mean to that crowd? To this crowd of onlookers here who may not be in the category of the Beatitudes. What does it mean to them? Here you are standing at a a marriage banquet and you're watching people come to the door and they knock on the door and the host of the marriage banquet opens and looks at them and says, oh, uh, what a lovely wedding garment. Come in, come in. And then another one comes and knocks and he opens the door. Oh, what a lovely wedding garment. Come in, come in. And you're standing there with no wedding garment. You've got an invitation in your hand. Come to the wedding feast. And you're watching them go in and you see these beatitudes being pronounced on this wedding garment. What does it mean to you? What's your interpretation of what's going on here? Well, two things. One, this is an invitation. The more you, you, you see people being welcomed in, it's an invitation for you to go get your wedding garment. Go get your wedding garment. Don't try to get in here without your wedding garment on. Go become like this. That's why for seven more weeks we're going to talk about this wedding garment. But there's another thing. You see, you may be in the category this morning of just hearing the invitation. Say, yeah, I hear that that's the way you're supposed to be. And you don't have any desire to be that way. In which case, I just plead with you, pray. Pray earnestly that God would not forsake you. And leave you in that hardness of heart. Pray to him that it might not be too late. And that he might come and meet you. And give you that desire. And that's the second thing. Isn't it the case that as you stood there and watched these people going in. And at first you say, who wants to go in there anyway? Wedding banquets are a bore. I want to go downtown. But every time the door opens, you kind of. Looks looks pretty good in there. And you. And you, you hear these, you hear these promises, these second halves of the Beatitudes. They're going to be comforted. They're going to see God. They're going to be satisfied. They're going to be called sons of the Almighty. And, you, it's, and what happens by the grace of God is desire is begotten. And that's my prayer for what happens this morning in the third category. You see, there are three categories. One, they're the disciples who when they hear these, they say, that's me. Oh, praise God. I want to be more like that. I know I'm imperfect. But, oh, I am there. I am a disciple. All of mercy. And then there's a second category of person that hears, yeah, I hear hear what you're talking about. But, man, it is a drag. Poor in spirit, not me. I am rich. I am sufficient, fella. I make it. And then there's the third category that says, I'm not on the inside, but it's starting to look real attractive. I've had it with self-sufficiency. I've tried that way. I think I understand what brokenness and mourning and meekness is all about. And you think he might have me? And then next week we get to this point. And this I close. 
Next week we start with blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn. And it's the best news, brothers and sisters, for a hopeless sinner in all the world. Because all it says is the number one criterion or condition that you must meet in order to have dealings with God is an empty hand. That hard? That hard? Big, tough condition to meet? Empty hand? It's the easiest condition in all the world unless you got a $1,000 bill in your hand or a bill of rights. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we hallow your name. We long for your kingdom to come right now. Manifest, O God, your kingly power in the life of people who are not on the inner ring of the disciples being declared fortunate and blessed, but who are on the outer ring watching, O God, Beget, I pray, right now, an irresistible desire to have an empty hand, a mourning for sin, a meek demeanor, a hunger for righteousness, and all the fullness of mercy and purity and peaceableness that comes. Oh, God, make the Beatitudes a reality in our midst at Bethlehem. We're so far short of where they could be in their fullness. And some are here today who stand totally on the outside because they don't have the king or the kingdom reigning. Draw them in, Father, before this day is done. Give them no rest until they find their rest in you. And all the people said, Amen.